more things I, I want you to see in this passage is, first of all, Israel's problem. Okay, the first verses we're going to get into, what's, what was Israel's problem? What, what happened? What resulted in them, in a sense, being in this state right now where they're somewhat set aside? Or the next chapter we'll see there's a partial hardening on them, meaning very few of them come into faith until God moves in them again. Israel's problem. And we're going to generalize it to a human problem because it is a human problem. So Israel's problem is the first one. The second thing is, who are the people who will be saved? And we heard this a little bit earlier as, as Rick shared it in communion. Who are the people who will be saved as opposed to Israel's viewpoint? The third thing we're going to see is the human process by which we are saved. So in this passage is a, a great process in a sense of how is a person saved from a human standpoint? How do we, how are we part of it? And, and as we learned, even though salvation is sovereignly overseen by God, just because God's the sovereign acting agent, it doesn't mean he's going to save someone anyway. It means he's going to save them in a particular way. And this is that particular way. This is how he's balancing God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Our part in the process he's revealing today. Very important that we hear this and know this. And the last thing is that God's prediction of Israel's problem. Israel's problem is going to be real at, real at first, and at the end we're going to see that God predicted that problem even in the past. So it's not that he didn't know what he was doing or that he is unfaithful. He knew this was going to happen, and he's had a plan all along, and we're seeing it here unfold. Israel's problem, starting in verse uh, 30 of chapter 9 and going to the fourth verse of chapter 10. Let's read this. You can follow along with me. It says, What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness... I remember Gentiles is just a word that we use in the Bible for non-Jewish people. Okay, They were outside the people of God. Remember when the Ro book of Romans had been written, the Israelites were kind of the core of, of God's people up to this point. So something really unique is happening in this first century that all these non-Jewish people are coming to faith and trusting in Jesus Christ and God's people, the Israelites, were not. And so they're, they're still using those terms that Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law, the Mosaic law, that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So let me explain this a little bit. Paul's really reviewing what he's been talking about through all of Romans up to this point, and he's applying it to the situation of Israel and the Gentiles. And he's saying, here's these Gentiles that were outside of God's people, didn't know his laws, didn't even know what was righteous, and now suddenly they've become righteous through Jesus Christ, when they'd never been part of that process before and had never pursued it. And he's saying, here's Israel that had the laws, had the covenants, all those things that we talked about in chapter 9. Everything was there, and yet they pursued that law as if it was a means of righteousness for themselves rather than that pointing them to a true righteousness. See, if you knew the law, if you knew the, the law and, and how it operated, you knew there was all kinds of guidelines for their behavior, how they were to act, how they were to worship, how they were to treat one another. But you also would have known this one thing. Anytime you violated the law, there is a provision in the law to offer a substitutionary sacrifice for your sin. And it 
Some were big, some were small, depending on the situation, but it always pointed to this sacrifice. And what God had intended for them to see in that law was that, that this law doesn't make you righteous. You can't obey it to the point of you suddenly becoming clean because just the fact that you have it, you're going to break it, you know you broke it, and you constantly have to come and offer a lamb or a, a goat or a bull or a dove of some sort. And that innocent, if it would be an unblemished animal, that innocent animal took your place and its blood covered and prevented your blood from being spilled. And so a, a true Jew would have recognized that I'm only, I'm only right with God, not because I obey this law. The fact that I'm here performing the sacrifice reveals the fact that I can't keep this law perfectly. But every time, God, by faith, provides a substitute for me. And here is the problem, is the Jews thought, they, they kind of skipped past that. They forgot what was truly going on, and they started just going through the motions. Hey, I'll, I'll knock off a few bulls here to cover me here. I got a few doves. I do this, I do this. And they started thinking that they were okay because they were following the law rather than recognizing, no, this just reveals to me my brokenness, and it's because God provides a substitute for me every single time that I'm clean. Which means my true righteousness is not because I can follow these guidelines. My true righteousness is because God cleanses me even when I don't deserve it. Are you with me? Now that's what Paul is saying here. That, that there's a righteousness that's by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Meaning they thought, as long as I meet this law to some degree, whatever that degree was, they thought they were righteous. They thought it was something that they did. They said, Paul goes on to say, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone is a God-provided righteousness that you can't earn. And it says in verse 33, as it is written, behold, this is from the, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 28, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling in a rock of offense. This is referring to Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And that was a stumbling block to the Jews. They didn't think they needed a savior for their sin. They just wanted a Messiah to come and bring political domination for their nation. They didn't recognize their problem. And Paul goes on to say, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is so important. They have a zeal for God. They had a, a passion for God, at least this God that they had created, even if it was somewhat based on the scriptures, but it wasn't according to knowledge. Meaning this, it doesn't matter how passionate or how religious you are. If you aren't doing it according to knowledge, according to how God has revealed himself, then it won't produce salvation. Church, this is, this is so important. It's so true in our community. Hundreds and thousands of zealously religious people. But if it's no different than the Jewish religion, if it's my works and my doing this and my performing that act and my doing all these deeds, if it's not according to knowledge, then they are no closer to God 
than the person who has outrightly rejected him and is doing their own thing. Zeal for a religion does not save a person. They must know how God has provided salvation. And Paul's heart ached for his own people, whom he said, have a zeal for God. They have all this religious garb all over and all these things all over the place, but they aren't pursuing God according to how he's revealed himself. It says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, which is the provided righteousness, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, whether it was through the law and that provided sacrifice or ultimately through Jesus Christ and Him providing a righteousness for you and me. And it tells us, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here's my first point for you. I cannot be saved by seeking a righteousness of my own, but only through faith in Jesus Christ, God's provided righteousness. You see, the heart of Israel's problem of rejecting God's righteousness was their pride. This is true of all of us. This is the original sin. This is our greatest struggle is pride. The grace that Paul reveals here, that's the challenge. The grace that Paul reveals in this book and that the Bible reveals undermines every bit of pride. You cannot be proud I shouldn't say that. It, it, it's intellectually inconsistent and spiritually inconsistent to be a Christian and be proud at the same time. Now we are, because God's still sanctifying and growing that in us, but the truth is, is pride runs in the, in the, at the very contrast to it because it's been done for us. It's been given to us. It should humble us that God would do such a thing for us. We have a tendency to do the same kind of thing as churches, even as Israel did as a nation. And as time goes on, uh, churches and Christianity become more works-based than they are grace-based. Churches often start off as a, an infancy, really focusing on the gospel. And when you're a new believer, you're so enamored by the gospel and just thankful for what Jesus did. And, and, and it's such a, a central part of your life. But as churches grow and as Christians grow, what begins to happen is some of our old ways start to creep back in. And what was sufficient to get us started isn't quite enough to keep us going. And so suddenly it's like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. We did that thing. But now, you know, you need to dress this way. And you need to act that way. And we're not saying that, that Christianity doesn't change how you do those things, but we start layering these rules on, and suddenly the gospel's set aside, and now these are the things that measure whether you're really a Christian or not. This happens with us individually. It happens with Christians. In fact, I call it kind of the, the senior and freshman rule. We talk about this as leaders a lot as we discuss how do we remain healthy as a church as we grow and continue to mature as a church and one of the problems is as a church grows or as people mature in a church you, you you do the same thing you did when you were in high school like when you were a freshman remember the things you had to do to get by as a freshman to make the team or to fit in or whatever and then suddenly when you're a junior you look back and say man those freshmen they got it so much easier than when we were there right and so you start raising the bar up because you're bigger now as a junior or as a senior you want to raise the bar up higher than what it really was when you were a, a freshman but you're a lot bigger now, 
and you don't want them to get in as easy as you did. The same thing happens in the church. This, I think, happened in the nation of Israel. As they go on, as they move on, they forget how far they were from God. We forget how far we were from God before we came to know him as our Savior. And so we start raising the bar as a church behind us for what a person should look like before they attend our church or what they should be doing before they can be part of our small group. And suddenly we raise a bar up to the point where we've created our own little self-righteous club. This is the two things that that this kind of mindset, this works-based salvation produces. It produces first a self-righteousness in us. We begin to think that we're better than those people out there. We pray for those people out there. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for the lost, but we pray for them as if they're second rate to us. Because we don't struggle with those things as much anymore. Or maybe God's changed us in some of those areas, and we forget where we came from. We begin to look down at those people. And then we begin to decide who are the people that we're comfortable with in our church. The second thing that does is it causes us to turn inwardly, just like Israel did. They had lost their mission that God had given them to be a light to the nations so that others could see them and come and meet their God. That happens in churches as well. We get very safe because, you know what, I got a seat here already. I have a place. And, man, if we bring some of the people in from our community that are, are in the spot there, and they're going to they're gonna rub shoulders with my kids, and, and they're going to be thinking some things that are different than what I've taught my kids now that I'm a Christian. And, and they're going to they're gonna say some things in our small group that are going to be like, whoa, that's, gonna be, that's a little bit weird. How are we going to address that? We can't let them think that way. And so it's safer for us to, to be self-righteous and turn inward and just say, as long as this is a safe place for me, this is a good place. And that's the first signs of a church that is one generation away from dying. One generation away from experiencing what Israel experienced over a long period of time and now is just set aside. This cycle happens in churches all the time. We start putting our own personal preferences before what God wants us to be. So we have to remember the gospel is always the heart and soul of who we are. And it's a righteousness that's given to us by Christ and by faith in Christ. And and so as a result, we need to always be looking outward as well as looking inwardly. The second thing we see in this passage, it starts in verse 5. So we saw Israel's problem. Now we're going to see who are the people who will be saved. And, and God's speaking to them because of that and how they missed out on that. It says, for Moses writes in verse 5 about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who, the, who, who does the commandments shall live by them. He's basically summarizing the fact that if you think the law makes you righteous, then you've got to obey it all. If you're going to live by the law, meaning this is my righteousness in the law, then if you break one commandment, man, the, the, it, it required death. That's why you had a sacrifice, a substitute. So if you're building your righteousness on that, you, got, you need a perfect record. That's the only way it's going to come. 
But he says, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's quoting from different passages in the Old Testament, many out of Deuteronomy. And this point here in this is saying, when you understand the truth of the gospel, it's not something that you have to reach up to heaven or you have to go on some kind of trek to get up to this great spiritual spot to get there. You have to dive down into the deeps to find it. He's saying, it's right here near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Meaning, he's saying this in a poetic way, that the gospel is available to you. It's not some great feat that you have to accomplish to attain to it. That's the first thing he's saying, is that it's readily available. And Paul's, or, or Paul says this here, he says, the word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's not a formula for salvation. Paul is again speaking of this availability, meaning it's right here. You all have a mouth, you all have a heart. You don't have to go on some great mission to find the salvation. And then he tells us, for with the heart one believes and is justified. And he's using a Hebrew parallelism here. This isn't the formula for salvation. It's a parallelism. He says, with the heart one believes and is justified. And to be justified means to be saved. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. It's one and the same thing. He's saying, it's available. You just have to believe this. When you call on the Lord, he will save you. Look at how he goes on to, to say it. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So here's where he's addressing the Jewish people. They forgot that this wasn't just a, an insider's club for them. They were to be a witness to the world. And he, Paul's now telling them, you were to be that distinction. It's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's the second point. The righteousness provided by the gospel is available to anyone who will ask for it. The righteousness provided by the gospel is available to everyone who will ask for it. This is, this is why we have the vision that we have. This is why we need to know that, that, that anyone in any neighborhood in our city is savable. There aren't certain parts of town that we need to reach. They're every part of town. There's not certain neighborhoods that that are worthy of the gospel. Every single neighborhood needs the gospel. And and as as soon as we forget that we are people sent for others, that this organization in a sense exists for God's glory and for the salvation of others, then we become like a mini Israel. We'll just turn inwardly and just make sure that we're safe, that we're comfortable and that we're doing okay. And God is speaking about what was the problem with Israel, and that was part of it. Prideful people believe that some types of people are worth saving more than others. But gospel-shaped people believe that every single person, regardless of race, 
regardless of demographic, regardless of gender, regardless of economic status, every single person needs God, needs a Savior, period. That was the second thing, the people. The third thing we'll see here is the process. So what's the human process by which we can be saved? And in verses 14 through 17, Paul says this very clearly. He says, how then will they call on him? And that they refers back to the last group he referred to, Jews and Greeks. How are they going to call? How is a Jew going to call on Jesus for salvation? And how is a Gentile or a Greek, which was that context in Rome, the Gentile going to call on him whom they hadn't heard, right? Whom they have not believed. I mean, how can they call on someone they haven't believed in? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they, now he's switching to just the Jews, and you'll see why in the next sentence. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, so he's going back to Isaiah who is speaking to the Jews. The reason the Jews are in the state they're in is because they have not all obeyed this gospel. He says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So here's my next point, and there's several little sub-points I want to flesh out for you in this one. Faith in Jesus Christ comes through hearing the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ comes through hearing the gospel. This is what Paul says in this passage. Now I'm going to give you four little steps that he uses in this, in this passage. You can go right back to it. It's basically verses 14 and 15. I'm going to flesh them out for you so we see these different aspects. This is a human side of salvation that God uses us in the process. The first is this. In order to be saved by him, I must believe in him. Okay, if I want to be saved by Jesus, I have to believe in him. I have to believe that he exists. I have to know something about him. I have to know and trust that he did these things for me. Okay, the Bible says that. The second step, though, is in order to believe in him, I must hear about him. I mean, how can you believe in someone that you've never even heard about? Okay, so that's the second step, is I have to hear about him. In order to hear about him, someone must share him. You with me? Okay, these aren't huge, difficult steps. And the last one, in order to share him, someone must be sent. In order to share him, someone must be sent. This is a pretty simple mission, church. God didn't give us something that's impossible to do. He, he's basically done all the work. And now he's telling us, man, you have the best news possible to share. But your, your neighbor's never going to believe in me unless someone tells him about me. They're going to continue doing the same things they've always done, wrapped up in the same stuff that they're wrapped up in, same kinds of stuff we were wrapped up in before someone came and shared something different with us. And you know what? He's never going to hear about me unless someone walks across the street and shares it with him. And no one's going to be walking across the street to share it with him unless someone sends them to do that. I'm going to just ask you for a moment. Have you considered where God 
may be sending you. And, and you don't have to fly across an ocean to be sent by God. Sometimes you just have to walk across the hall in your class or at your office. And there's someone there that's so near. The word is near. The truth is near. It's right here. It's available for them. They just need someone to share it. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker, a friend. Church, this is our mission. Maybe for us corporately, it's not just our neighbors. Maybe it's us saying, is there a part of town that's needy as well? Is there a concentration of churches in, in certain areas of town? Is there a place in our city where we as a church can say, how about we just are sent there to share this truth with them so that there are people there who are coming across them on a daily basis that they might hear it as well. God may send you across the street. He may send you across the city. He may send you across the country. And some of you, he may send across the world. He sends so that we can do a very simple but beautiful task. Bring the best news any person could ever hear. See, a church is destined to die, is one generation from death, when they forget to remember that God has saved us, not just for ourselves. He's saved us to send us. And as soon as we forget that, we might as well just start planning to shut the doors. Because it's inevitable when we forget who we are. And that's what happened to Israel. That's why they're in the state they're in right now. Not indefinitely, but where they are right now. Last thing we see here is the re is God's prediction of Israel's problems. He This didn't catch him by surprise. In verses 18 and following, he goes to all kinds of prophetic passages in the Old Testament that said this is exactly what was going to happen. But I ask, have they not heard? Meaning, have the Jews not heard? Indeed they have. And he quotes Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. It's a psalm about God's general and specific revelation to humanity. And, and they've easily heard. Obviously, they've had everything they've needed in, in front of them. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So Israel didn't understand, here in this sense, they didn't understand that they were a people sent and called out in as a nation to reach other nations. And so they huddled up and they, they got in their little club and, and as long as you fit into their club, you were great. But if you didn't, they wanted nothing to do with you. And God's telling them here, because of that, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Who is not a nation? That's us, Gentiles. We're just the non-Jewish people. And he's saying, I'm going to make you jealous. We're going to see that next week. That we're coming to faith. Gentiles are flooding in and following Jesus. And the nation from whom Jesus came from is still turning their backs on him. God told him that would happen. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. That's us. We didn't seek God. Think about it. We, we forget because we're 2,000 years after this event. 
And we forget that if God had never sent his son Jesus, Israel would still be a little nation across the ocean in such a way that you and I would never have heard about this God whom we worship. But God sent his son. And his son sent his apostles to reach people of every type. And through that chain of events, someone has come to the places where we live far, far away from this little nation of Israel and told you and me about Jesus. And it's changed our lives. And Paul's saying this, I've shown myself to them who did not ask for me. That's us. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. My final point is this, and then we'll make some simple applications, is, is this. The reason many Israelites were not saved was because they would not believe. They would not believe. They would not receive the gift of righteousness. They wanted to build their own. And God was offering one that was much better than anything they could ever achieve. And they would not understand that the gift of righteousness was for all people. They wanted it for their own little club. For people that looked like them, that dressed like them, that had the same ancestry as them. And God said, no, my salvation is available to all types of people. Consider the mission of Jesus, who in this passage is called the stone of stumbling. Just think about Jesus for a moment and how what he did is ultimately a microcosm of what Israel was supposed to do. But they didn't. Jesus, he, he lived in glory in the majesties of heaven for all of eternity. He was in absolute comfort, absolute glory for eternity past. That's all he ever knew. And yet, he'd never experienced the pain and the presence of sin. And yet his father's mission was for him to redeem a people for himself. His father's mission was to redeem a people for himself because we could never do it through the law. He said, I need to send a substitute for them. I need someone who can represent them to me because I'm perfectly holy. And no one down there has been able to do that. So he sends his son as a substitute for us. You see, if anyone deserved to look down at other people, if anyone deserved to remain safe, and keep messy people out. It was God. Because we are a mess. And he's perfect. He deserved to do that. But he chose not to. He chose to send his own son. And he didn't just put aside his own comfort. He temporarily laid aside his right to glory. Jesus did and gave himself for sinners. And he didn't just come to proclaim the gospel. Think about that. Jesus didn't just come and, and walk through the streets and simply proclaim the gospel. He did do that, but that's not merely what he came for. He came to become the gospel for you and for me. He became the consequence of sin, of your sin and my sin. He took that upon himself on that cross so that you and I could receive a reward, a righteousness that did not belong to us. It was the most
most amazing, unjust, in one sense, exchange that's ever happened in the history of the universe. He gets the consequences of our sin so that you and I could receive the consequence of his perfect life. He was sent. Even when it wasn't deserving. Jesus crossed an infinite gap from heaven to earth to make this message available to us. He crossed an infinite gap. Is it too much for him in entrusting us with this message to ask us to cross a few finite gaps so that our neighbor, our co-worker, our fellow city dweller might hear a message that's changed our lives? Maybe you're here today and for the first time you understand this gospel. Maybe you've, you've resisted and thought, I don't know if I should even go to church. Are they going to welcome me? I'm not really that type of person. You're exactly the type of person. Jesus came to save sinners. That's his message. That's who we are. And if you've never trusted him, if you've never taken that step to simply call on his name and say, Jesus, I believe you are who, who I've come to see you to be, that you were perfect, you lived that perfect life for us broken sinners, and you offered it as a sacrifice for a person like me, who, as hard as I might try, could never be perfect. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my punishment and by faith offering me your righteousness. Maybe that's your step today, is to trust Him for the first time. Remove those barriers that maybe a church or a religious organization or a person told you and receive what Paul has clearly proclaimed to us today. But for some of us, many of us, maybe we've done that, but, but we need to return to a gospel-based growth in our life. And we slide into these works-based righteousness that, that lead us to a prideful mindset towards outsiders or people who are different toward us. They lead us to a prideful mindset that says, when I come to church, I want to make sure that everything here fits and matches my needs. Rather than one that says, I wonder, I wonder what a, an outsider would experience if they came in here. Is my need to have all my needs met when I come? Is that a barrier to someone who's broken, someone who's never heard, who's far from God being welcomed in? Because the Jews were masters at that. They had like 900-some laws that they'd added to all this stuff that anyone coming, would like, it would like blow them away. How could I even think that I could be part of this family? How could I even think that I could relate to this God?
dying city with a message that has the power to change people like nothing else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. I thank you for your word. I thank you for just how powerful and penetrating it is because it always gets to the bottom of every issue. And even as you use Paul to pen these words, you knew that at this point, that church, that growing church in Rome needed to step back and remember who she was and remember what led your people, the Israelites, into the difficult circumstance they were in. They had forgotten their mission as a people. So Lord, may we learn as your church from those lessons. And we remember that the gospel is not for certain types of people. It's not for people whom we're comfortable with or people who look like us or dress like us or descend from the same color of people that we descend from. It's, it's a good news preached to every single person. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Send us into this city. Send us into our neighborhoods. Send us wherever you want to send us.